Hi, Natalie. Hey, Tara. What's up? Nothing much. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. How about another you? Day, another day, another good. Another day, another dollar in the store. Living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what more could I ask for? I like to hang out and listen to music and talk music. So it's a pretty good gig. It's awesome. We meet so many cool people and other performers and we yeah. grow our creative network. It's awesome. Best of both worlds. Yeah. Um, but also been learning a lot lately about producers, specifically female producers. Yeah, I've been loving these conversations for sure. There's just, there's so many amazing um, just impactful, experienced women out there whose stories need to be blasted. Yeah. And, you know, a mission of mine, at least, was to try to make um, some of these producers household names. Although I was looking, I was trying to figure out, you know, who are some of those women producers from the Billboard Top 100 that uh, it was like, what was it, like, two percent of women or something or maybe it was seven sure. percent of women atrociously and low <laughs> yeah just just terrifyingly low but I wanted to see okay who are these women that they're specifically talking about in this mm-hmm. tiny percentage which doesn't include like indie women producers or um you know things like that and so when I looked it up I was like oh okay this is a household name this person and especially right now and it's all due to one show. I bet I know what it is. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I ruined the big reveal. Stranger (laughs) Things, yes. Stranger Things has brought a woman producer to the top of the Billboard charts. And this is under the category of producer, not song. I mean, obviously the song is at the top of the billboards. Right. So going to look at like, who are the producers of these songs that are on the billboard charts and top one was Kate Bush. So you love to see it. You love to see it. I love to see it. (laughs) That's amazing. Good for her. I know. I love her so much. And actually, I've loved her for a long time. I've been playing her in my sets since I've been DJing in Atlanta and even before that. So I I have loved her for a long time. I got Hounds of Love on vinyl when I was in college in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I would like to say I knew Kate Bush and was jamming Kate Bush pre-Stranger pre Stranger Things. Things. Yeah, hell yeah. But that is not to say, uh, I'm very happy that younger audiences, I mean, it's not like I was really around when she had her debut album out. So I myself am a young audience member from when she came up. But I like that, you know, there's more generations that are being, uh, that are discovering Kate Bush. Yeah, it's exciting. So. It's exciting. I can only imagine how like completely chuffed she is to see this happening, you know? have this whole yeah. this whole new resurgence of her her music pop up especially in the United States because it seems like she didn't really get that popularity in the United States for a long time but had it the whole time in the UK oh for sure from yeah. the very beginning yeah well my partner is very much obsessed with Kate Bush and with good reason she's she's incredible so i did most yeah. of my 
catching up and crash coursing on Kate Bush, you know, when we met years and years ago. And she's, she's amazing. Um, and, but yeah, same thing. As an American, I was just kind of like superficially aware of some of her biggest hits and whatever, but I had never done like that deep dive. And she has like a really incredible track record and career, you know? She really does. She's done so much, contributed so much to music and influenced so many people over the years, women, men, whoever. She's influenced lots of people, lots of artists, and not not limited to just rock or experimental artists as well. I mean, she's influenced classical music. She's influenced dancers. She's influenced um, film. I mean, hip hop all over. She's influenced Oh, for sure. And their art. She represents kind of this this cool secret club, too, I think, of, of women producers. And that's the group of women who had really or have really successful careers as recording artists. And that identity has kind of overshadowed the amount of work and the amount of, you know, input that they have in the, in the studio, you know, as songwriters and as instrumentalists and producers. Women like Kate Bush and women like Imogen Heap... You know, women who are like really working behind the scenes and making their own music. There's this weird thing, I think, in the culture of like a woman's place is on the stage behind the microphone, dancing around and, you know, little dresses to be seen and, you know, be held as, as as performers. And so that the part of them that's really taking control of their artistic expression kind of gets minimized a bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Man, immediately when you started saying that, it, I thought of her song, This Woman's Work. Oh, Yeah. Absolutely. But we'll get into that more okay. later. Okay, I'll, I'll save my comments on that for later. <laughs> We're getting ahead of ourselves. We love Kate Bush. Okay. We are. We love Kate Bush. Well, so as we've been getting more familiar with these known or unknown female producers, we've been kind of just getting familiar with kind of how they started and what they did and what they accomplished. And there's so much out there about Kate Bush. It's hard to just scrape the surface. Mm-hmm. because there's so much. But I didn't want to like bring to you this giant college course worth of Kate Bush content. So I guess I will still need to start from the top, but I will only be lightly scratching the surface because there's so much about everything she's done. But getting into it. So Kate Bush, born in 1958. Uh, she's an English singer, songwriter, pianist, record producer, and dancer. In 1978, at the age of 19 years old, she topped the charts, the UK singles chart, for four weeks with her debut single, Weathering Heights, and became the first female artist to achieve a UK number one with a self-written song. I wanted to start out with that. A banger. She was 19 years old. Wow. Her debut record broke a Guinness record, first female artist to achieve a number one UK song that was self-written. That's incredible. And it was her debut single on her debut album. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> a young child, right. 19. So, but then building up to that moment, Bush, uh, Kate Bush was the youngest child of an artistic family. Her dad uh, was a doctor, but he played piano, and her mom was a nurse, but she competed as a folk dancer in her native Ireland. Kate studied violin and piano and joined her parents and her brothers in performing traditional English and Irish songs at home, but she began writing songs on her own at age 11. Wow. I'd love to hear her first song at the age of 11. I bet it's incredible. 
I mean, it reminds me of Bjork too, how, you know, Bjork had that like jazz band as a yeah. small child and was already writing songs Full on and album. Out records. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Glinglo, if you don't know it, you should check it out. But so then by the age of 14, she'd begun writing her own musical compositions. And the family friend named Ricky Hopper brought some of the tapes that she had made to some companies around 1972 when Kate was around 13, 14. The tapes were passed over. No one was really into them. But then Hopper played them for his friend David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. He was a guitarist for Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. David Gilmore was immediately intrigued, and then he went to meet the family. He was very impressed with Kate's talent for songwriting. He fit the bill for some better-sounding demos while he was in the studio, Abbey Road Studios, while Pink Floyd was recording Wish You Were Here in 1975. So then he played those demos for record company execs and was able to get her signed to EMI Records, and they gave her an advance of 3,000 pounds. Rolling in the dough. Yeah, she was like 14. Right? That's a lot of Babysitter's Club's books I could have bought. Right. This is like our dream as children to be (laughs) signed. Two of the demos recorded in 1975 were actually included on the debut album that came out three years later. That was The Man with the Child in His Eyes and the saxophone song. So with the advance that Kate got from EMI, she used that to enroll in an interpretive dance class taught by Lindsay Kemp, who was a former teacher of David Bowie and was also um, a mime artist, mime dancer, mime dancer, mimer, mime, mimer, mimery. What is it? (laughs) He mimed. He was a mime pro. Mm -hmm. So, and actually she, the song Moving from her debut album was inspired by Lindsay Kemp and Wales, which if you start that song from the very beginning, you'll hear some whale songs. But let's hear a clip of Moving from her debut album called The Kick Inside. So... The Kick Inside, this is her debut album, came out in 1978. Initially, EMI wanted the song James and the Cold Gun to be the single, but Kate was like, no, 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 no. I will not let that happen. The first single from this album is going to be Weathering Heights, whether you like it or not. And she, of course, got her way. And so Weathering Heights was the single for the debut record. And of course, like I mentioned, flew up the charts to number one, getting her that record of a first-time female singer-songwriter topping the charts with a self-written song. And it stayed at the top of charts for weeks, and it it kicked out ABBA to get there. Mm. I think Take a Chance on Me was the one that was kicked out. Crazy. But yeah. The album itself, The Kick Inside, sold over a million copies in the United Kingdom alone. Weathering Heights topped the UK and Australian charts, became an international hit. Didn't really, the album did not really take off in the US, and likely because of the format of the music and just we here in the United States were just not ready for her greatness, I would like to say. And, you know, when you think of the music video, even for Weathering Heights, it, it was a little bit before MTV, and there just wasn't an outlet for 
for her kind of expression, I would say. Not in the United States. Or they just weren't ready. We weren't ready for her. Yeah, she was definitely pushing the boundaries. I mean, it's pretty incredible considering how young she was to be able to stand up to the the big wigs at the record company be like, no, this is the single. This is the song. And I'm really glad she did that because James and the Cold Gun, like, I don't know. It's kind of, it's cool. I love, I love the kick inside all the way through. But that song's like yeah. a little hokey. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> I just don't know if that would have been like the right introduction to the Kate Bush experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it was probably a slow burn, which I use that term a lot, but in this sense, it took a while for us in the United States to really latch on to her artistry. But now we have an event, I think it's actually a global event, on Kate Bush's birthday where several people don red dresses and do the choreography from the Wuthering Heights music video. Yeah, and that event is called the Most Wuthering Heights Day Ever. It is global and you can find video on YouTube of lots of places. Atlanta, Georgia is one of the only places in America that it's taken place a few years in a row. So peep Atlanta, Georgia on YouTube for Wuthering Heights Day. (laughs) Absolutely. So yeah, not only was she the first female artist in music history to have that, that record of being the first female to have a number one hit in the UK that was self written, but she was also the first female artist in pop history to have written every track on a million-selling debut album. She's killing it already. I mean, her can she, legacy. Can she legally drink yet? <laughs> right. She can't even, well, I guess, in, I guess in the UK she can. Oh, yeah. I don't know what their limits are, but I'm pretty sure it's younger than here. After the success of that debut single, Wuthering Heights, She really was carving out a space for herself in the industry. I mean, think of the time and place of music when that was out. It was it was dominated by punk and new wave. And she stood in contrast to other artists like Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Stranglers. And yet she she was revered by the same punk punk rockers in the scene because she was so boldly herself. And Boy George actually has said she appeared out of nowhere at the tail end of punk and sort of embodied the punk spirit by just being completely herself. So yeah, just being staying true to herself and doing what she wanted to do and having complete artistic control of her vision, which she has maintained, by the way, throughout many decades of uh, music success, um, which I think gets harder and harder the more popular you become. You kind of, it seems like you, you have to fit a mold that you've almost created of yourself. Yeah, it's like this weird temptation to, you know, here you are following your North Star and that's what gets you popular in the first place. But then at some point, a lot of artists kind of like get sidetracked into doing what they think the audience wants them to do. Oh, well, they like this thing, so I'm going to just keep doing this thing. But the ones who really excel and who, who are really amazing and the artists that I think are most admirable are the ones who just stay completely trained on their inner voice and what they want to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or even pushing themselves to be curious and explore new avenues that really just pushes their careers further because they are just widening their artistic ability or something like that. Right. It's like they know how to, how to like quiet that 
glob of those voices that are just like the most, the least common denominator of the crowd. You know what I mean? And that never really pushes anyone creatively because then you're just people pleasing. There are artists that are pushing themselves creatively, but aren't successful. And it's because maybe their debut was so huge or, or, you know, what they've created that sort of launched their careers or blew them up. If it was so different from that, it kind of fails. And my, my, Initial thought on that one is someone like Talk Talk. When you think of that new mm, yeah. new wave hits, it's like Talk Talk and it's my life. And then you have their more experimental ambient stuff right after The Laughing Stock and then Spirit of Eden, which I absolutely love, but it just wasn't as popular because it didn't really fit radio. Yeah, there's definitely like a sweet spot in there and you, you have to be careful. You can't like get too successful or blow up too big or have like that one hit wonder thing happen. That's like the yeah. worst, you know? And then you and then you have that sort of like sophomore challenge where you kind of want to yeah. keep the people on board, but you want to also like convince them to come someplace new with you. It has to be really, really hard for, for new artists who just stumble on that level of success. Yeah. But I think you have to have that same mindset, which Kate does. And that is, she never started doing this with the intention of ever becoming famous. She was doing it to just create just expressing herself yeah believed in yeah and I think someone like Bjork is also very much like that or Tori Amos and they are true to themselves and they are exploratory but it's not so far out of left field although Bjork's later stuff is totally out of left field but we all understand and know that she's just kind of weird (laughs) at this point so we're (laughs) she can do whatever she wants at this point right Right. <laughs> and she's got exactly. a new album coming out. But we'll we'll get to that another oh, time. What? I haven't heard this yet. That's exciting. All I know is there's a new podcast coming out of her explaining um, all of her albums. And I can't wait for that. I cannot I wait. Dive. My God. It's going to be so good. Comes out September 1st. Soon. Anyway, jumping back into Kate Bush. That's who we're talking about here. No, not York. Love but her. Kate Bush. <laughs> Oh, one thing I wanted to call out. Apparently, EMI tried to capitalize on her appearance by promoting the album, the debut album, with a poster of her in a tight pink shirt that emphasized her breasts. Oh, dear Lord. And I know. In an interview with Enemy in 1982, Kate said, People weren't even generally aware that I wrote my own songs or played the piano. The media just promoted me as a female body. It's like I've had to prove that I'm an artist in a female body. Yeah, that's a shame. But, you know, that's what I was saying before. Like, just the the visual kind of just swallows everything else up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Fast forward to nine months later, second studio album came out in 1978 called Lionheart. And by this point, Kate had set up her own publishing company. This is where more just like baller, lady producer, strong mind, opinionated woman comes out. (laughs) She's already setting up her own publishing company, Kate Bush Music, and her own management company so that she could maintain control of her work. (laughs) And some of this was her members of the board were actually her family. So I thought that was pretty neat. Following the release of Lionheart, she started to take on heavy promotional work and did this like huge crazy tour. The first and only of two tours she ever, ever did. So keep that in mind when we talk about this one, uh, this promotional tour. 
The tour was called The Tour of Life. It began in April 1979, and it lasted for six weeks. It was, it was music, it was dance, it was poetry, it was mime, it was burlesque, it was magic, and it was theater. And she was involved in every aspect of the production, choreography, set design, costume, costume design, and hiring. And she, she danced, it had complex lighting, and there were apparently like 17 costume changes per show. And because she needed to dance and sing at the same time, she worked with her sound engineers to create this sort of wireless microphone headset with a wire coat hanger and a radio microphone. And this was like the first version ever of a wireless headset microphone. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. That's so Which, cool. Which, of course, you know, artists like Madonna, Janet Jackson, right. Britney Spears, and others went on to adopt. Um, so she has not only influenced the music industry as a female artist, singer, songwriter, but now she has influenced sound engineers and perform live performances. Like, um, I have chills just thinking about it. It's so huge. That is pretty major. She's like a, a tech pioneer. That's so neat. A tech pioneer. I mean, I, I, I think I recall hearing that she's like a bit of a control, a control freak. So like she didn't do much live performance after those, you know, the first couple of years of her career, like you mentioned, because yeah. that's a lot of stuff to take on. And I guess you just can't tailor all of the elements just the way you want. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But yeah, I bet it was incredible to, to witness, though. I mean, you know who else was a control freak? Prince. Oh, yeah. And he was a legendary artist, too. So it's like if you want if you want to have control over your vision completely. Exactly. I think you kind of have to be a control freak in some ways. I don't know. Hopefully she was nice about it at least. Uh, no, I'm going to need you to do this. You have to do this. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> Please. Uh, all right, let's talk about the music from Lionheart. The lead single from Lionheart is Hammer Horror. Let's listen to that one. Uh, Hammer Horror peaked at a low 44 on the UK charts, but the album actually performed pretty well overall in the UK. I think it peaked at number six or something like that. But so it was initially unreleased in the US following the sort of lack of sales after her debut album, but then was released alongside The Dreaming, which came out in 1984. Lionheart, she co-produced with Andrew Powell, and she does one more album with him called Never Forever, and from then forth produced all of her albums by herself. This is like pretty rare for women to do. We did talk about this before. Um, another person that did their own album as a woman producer was Betty Davis. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it's so rare, but again, in the 70s, right? Or was mm -hmm. it the 80s that she took that one? that one on. I think that was the 70s, which is pretty rare for a woman in music at that time. But yeah, fast forward to Never Forever, another release, a second foray into production with Andrew Powell. This album came out in September of 1980. It was Kate Bush's first number one album. And this was the, here's another chart topper record. It was the first album by a female British solo artist to top the UK charts. 
and was the first album by any female solo artist to enter the chart at number one and has since been certified gold. And it featured top 20 singles, Breathing, Army Dreamers, and Babushka. Let's hear Babushka. Sorry, and I actually said she co-produced with Andrew Powell on this one, but she co-produced this one with John Kelly. Andrew Powell co-produced the first two records with her, and this is her third, which was co-produced with John Kelly. The huge thing about this album is that this is the first album to feature this very fancy synthesizer drum machine called the Fairlight CMI synthesizer. Mm -hmm. Big freaking deal. It was the first commercial release to feature the Fairlight synth. Just a little detail about the Fairlight synth so that we all kind of, so we're all on the same page about what what the heck this thing is. It is a digital synthesizer, sampler, and DAW, which is a digital audio workstation. It's one of the earliest music workstations with an embedded sampler and is credited for coining the term sampling in music. And I mean, that's huge for her to be the first person to release music commercially using this first digital workstation. That's crazy. And sampler. I believe that came out of her friendship and collaboration with Peter Gabriel. Were you about to say that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) We're on the same page. Peter Gabriel was introduced to the Fairlight Synth and he became interested in selling them in the United Kingdom. So he formed with another person, this, this company called Psycho Systems, S-Y-C-O, Psycho Systems, to distribute it uh, for 12,000 pounds. And the first UK customer was Led Zeppelin bassist John Paul Jones. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see. Other musicians to adopt the Fairlight synth, Boz Burrell, Kate Bush, Jeff Downs, Trevor Horn, Alan, Trevor Horn, Alan Parsons, Rick Wright, and Thomas Dolby. And then in the U.S., Stevie Wonder, Herbie Hancock, John Hammer, or Jan Hammer, Todd Rundgren, and Joni Mitchell. So I've already mentioned that her album Never Forever was the first commercially released album that included the Fairlight synth. It was programmed by Richard. So I mentioned that like 300 times already that this was the first commercially released album to incorporate the Fairlight synth. It was programmed by Richard James Burgess and John L. Walters of the group Landscapes. So they programmed the orchestral sounds onto the Fairlight synth. The Fairlight had become so ubiquitous in music that Phil Collins even had to put on the sleeve in his liner notes that there was no Fairlight on this record, meaning that he had not used one to synthesize horn or string arrangements for his record, no uh, no jacket required from 1985. I thought that was pretty funny, so I had had to call it out here. I thought that was hilarious. So yeah, another just another huge uh, contribution to music again. Mm-hmm. It's literally every album she has, she contributes something huge to music. Very influential person. Fast forward to The Dreaming, which came out in 1982. It was recorded over two years, and it was produced entirely by Kate. It was uh, her most uncommercial 
experimental album. But this album has been critically acclaimed by many over the many over significant decades. So um, NPR ranked The Dreaming as the 24th greatest album ever made by a female artist. It was included in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. It was in the Word magazine's greatest underrated albums of our time list. Musicians such as Bjork and Big Boy have cited The Dreaming as one of their favorite albums. And so, yeah, it's it's just um, critically acclaimed by by many, this album. And it's an experimental album. Yeah, I quite like this one. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I would rank all of the Kate Bush albums. I don't, I've never done that before. And I feel like that would be really difficult. But <laughs> The Dreaming would be up there. I'm, I'm quite a big fan of it. Yeah, I'm less familiar with The Dreaming, I think, than every other of her albums. But some instruments included on The Dreaming are mandolin, Yulian pipes, didgeridoos. There are shifting time signatures, textures, polyrhythmic percussion, samples, vocal loops. So she really went there. Just all the tricks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she she really tried everything. One of the singles from this album is called Sat in Your Lap. Let's listen to a clip of that. Sat in Your Lap kind of explores feelings of existential frustration and the search for knowledge. And other songs like Leave It Open kind of speak to exploring the darker side of one's personality. The quietus, I don't know if it's the quietus or the quietus, however you would like to pronounce that internet blog, which I love so much. Their top albums of the year list is always my favorite source. But they suggest that the dreaming's disparate narratives frequently seem to be tropes for Bush's quest for artistic autonomy and the anxieties they accompany it. That was a really interesting take on that album. Okay, and I just a couple more I want to highlight because I, she's such an accomplished artist. I don't want to go detail by detail of all of her albums because it would take all day. We would have to close the store <laughs> before I was finished. But Hounds of Love, 1985, my introduction to Kate Bush. This one reached critical and commercial acclaim in the United States, finally. Finally, we catch on, 1985. The otherworldly single, Running Up That Hill. Let's listen to a clip of that. So yeah, this song, Running Up That Hill, was actually the breakthrough in the United States for her. And then we also have, oh, and this one knocked Madonna like a virgin from the number one spot in the UK, which I think is hilarious. That's pretty major. (laughs) Hounds of Love received critical acclaim on its release and reviews. A lot of music critics and fans claim this one to be her best album. It is regularly voted one of the best albums of all time, second to top the UK albums chart and in the US this time. It reached top 40 on the Billboard 200. It's one of her best-selling studio albums of all time. And she was nominated for Best British Female and Best British Single for the song Running Up the Hill. On top of that, we also have the song Hounds of Love. We have Cloud Busting. We have Big Sky. These are all amazing, amazing songs. I love them all so much. 
Do you remember the cover of Hounds of Love <clears throat> from the Future Heads, like in the early 2000s? No. Should That's we great. hear a clip of that? We should. Okay. What you write, It's coming at me through the tree. Help me, someone, help me, please. I love Hounds of Love, and hearing that cover made me so happy. I think it's That's great. so cool. I did want to call out Rolling Stone here. Let's do it. Put them on blast. I hope they, yeah, they wrote a shit review of this album, and I hope whoever wrote it is still kicking themselves in the head. Um, okay, here's what it says. The mistress of mysticism has woven another album that both dazzles and bores. Like the Beatles on their later albums, Bush is not concerned about having to perform the music live, and her orchestration swelled to the limits of technology. But unlike the Beatles, Bush often over-decorates her songs with exotica. There's no arguing that Bush is extraordinarily talented, but as with Jonathan Richman, Rock's other eternal kid, her vision will seem silly to those who believe children should be seen and not heard. Excuse me. I know. Well, isn't that some pretentious, fart-smelly bullshit? <laughs> yes. What the hell? Get out of here. Get out of here. Also, was that an X-ray specs O bondage up yours reference? Because <laughs> I think they would also say, fuck you. Seriously. <laughs> fuck you, Rolling Stones. Uh, in the same year that this album came out, Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel had their top 10 hit, Don't Give Up, which... Oh. Did you know this, that Peter Gabriel wanted Dolly Parton to sing with him at uh, first? But oh, she really? Turned him down. I did not know yes. that. Yes. That's crazy. Can you imagine? I oh, would no. love it. But then we, would, we wouldn't have gotten that awesome music video of, of you know, him just like embracing Kate Bush. The video is so simple, yeah. but it like, it does something to my heart. It's just so sweet just seeing two people it's, just hold each other and right. spin around. <laughs> it's the only so thing on the video is them on the top of a hill. Just, just hug, hugging each other. Time. And it's so, like, it's so touching. I don't know. I love that song. I love it, too. I would pay thousands of dollars to see Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel on the same tour. Like, thousands of dollars. I would give, I would give money, lots of it, to just Not even playing, just, just them hugging it out in a glass box. <laughs> no, no, I need some performance to happen. <laughs> yeah, no. But that would be an amazing, amazing tour. For sure. Fast forward to 1989, The Sensual World comes out. This is the one that Kate Bush calls herself her most honest personal album. The only song I would like to call out from this album is This Woman's Work. I know you have a little life in you yet. I know you have a lot of strength left. I know you have a little life in you yet. Gorgeous. Yes. And originally featured on the soundtrack of She's Having a Baby. <laughs> Seriously? Oh, wow. Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Um, Kevin Bacon is in that movie from 1988. This Woman's Work is my other favorite uh, Kate Bush often covered track. Because I'm sure you've heard the, the cover from Maxwell. That's what yes. I was going to say. Oh, my God. We're of one mind. I love it. Yeah. I love it so much. We have to hear... A snippet of Maxwell's cover of this woman's work. Yeah. What do you think she's talking about in this woman's work? <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I feel like this is one this is one of those things that's like interpreted 
through the lens of your own personal experience. I think it hits people in different ways. I don't know. What do, what do you take from it? You know, so I was wondering if she wrote it because, or like, you know, I wonder, I was wondering if she was kind of talking through her work in the music industry as a woman. When I learned that it was tied to the soundtrack for She's Having a Baby, it made it more like obvious from the standpoint of woman things that women go through, like having children or things like that. But so she says that it was one of the quickest songs she's ever written and it was just a matter of telling the story. And so I think it was rather straightforward related to the theme of the movie. Have you seen that movie? Gosh, not in a million years. Have you? Um, yeah, same here. Like it's very, very foggy for me. Yeah. The movie's too the movie's too far away for me to like to be able to like cohesively connect the lyrics to it at the moment. Yeah. So this young guy falls in love with a girl, marries her, he's still very much a kid, she gets pregnant, all very childlike and like until she's about to have the baby, the nurse comes up to him and says it's in a breach position, they don't know what the situation will be. And while she's in the operating room, he has to sit and wait. And it's a very po- powerful piece in the film where he's just sitting and thinking. And this is this is like where in the moment he has to grow up. And he has no choice. And there he is. And he's not a kid anymore. And you can see he's in this very grown-up situation. Um, he's just going in his mind. He's going back to the times that they were together. And the, there's clips of them laughing and, you know, in their apartment and all of these moments. And so I guess that's the sort of thing that she had to write the song about. In the context of the movie, is it like the dying wife trying to like soothe or encourage the husband who's like suffering with all this grief and all this regret and wanting this pain to go away? Right. Yeah. It's like exploring sadness and guilt. Yeah. It's, it's heavy, but the song feels heavy too. Even just the, the music, musicality of it. You just cry. It's just, it's a crying song. (laughs) Yeah. Of all the things I should have said that I never said, all the things we should have done that we never did, all the things I should have given, but I didn't. Oh, darling, make it go away. Make it go away. Mm. I know you have a little life in you yet. I know you have a little, a lot of strength left. I know you have a little life in you yet. I know you have a lot of strength left. Yeah. So it's like a dialogue, right? (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. So beautiful. All right. Moving on. We have The Red Shoes from 1993. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I say one more thing yeah. about the, the album? Definitely. Before we move on. I believe that the sensual world, so it's, let's go back to when she was discovered by David Gilmore way back in mm-hmm. the day. It's kind of interesting that even though he discovered her and like been there through this whole journey, I think this was the first album that he featured. He played on the album. Oh, really? Yeah, I think oh. he I think he played on a couple of tracks I know. I think Rocket's Tale and an, another one, I believe, but the, the title escapes me. I thought that was kind of interesting. That's cool. I did not know that. But fast forward to 1993, The Red Shoes was released. And this one was actually the album that made it the highest in the charts in the United States. I don't know if this is actually still true now that Stranger Things has pushed running up that hill, mm-hmm. you know, like crazy high in the charts if that impacted the sales or rank in um, Hounds of Hounds of Love. But at this point in time, pre-Stranger Things, <laughs> The Red Shoes gave her her highest charting album in the United States. 
And the singles from this album are Rubber Band Girl, The Red Shoes, Moments of Pleasure, and So Is Love, featuring Eric Clapton on the guitar, which reached, um, all reached, all of those songs reached top 30. Let's hear a clip of Rubber Band Girl. So yeah, after the release of The Red Shoes, Kate sort of dropped out of the public eye and she only meant to take a year off, but despite working on new material, 12 years passed before she released her next album. Mm -hmm. And that is her eighth studio album, Ariel, which was released in 2005. The next studio album was called 50 Words for Snow, and it was released in 2011 and even features a cameo appearance um, of Elton John on the duet Snowed In at Wheeler Street. Okay, fast forward three more years, 2014. She goes on tour again. Second time on tour this whole time. (laughs) Only the second. Second. Crazy. So this was before the Dawn concert series. It was a residency that she held at Hammersmith Apollo in London, and it consisted of 22 dates. It was the first, like I said, first series of live shows since Tour of Life in 1979. So 2014, first one, 1979, this one, 2014. That's a huge expanse of time for not touring at all, right? And then she had also... um, I think they originally were going to have those 22 dates and then they added, I think, uh, maybe like seven more dates or something like that for the pre-sale shows. These are for people who signed up from her from her website. And then they released extra dates that were, or, or released the extra dates for the general public and sold out in 15 minutes. That's incredible. Luckily, all of these shows were captured, or some of the recordings from this show were captured on live recordings, so you can experience them on DVD, VHS, and digitally streaming. So catch it, check it out. And then in 2018, she published her first book, How to Be Invisible, and it's a compilation of lyrics. So that's all I really wanted to go over. That's all I wanted to really go over as far as her (laughs) releases, but that's so many. But I really also wanted to highlight some of her accomplishments. We've kind of already listed a few of them, and they're monumental and just crazy huge. But let's go down this list again. First female artist to achieve a UK number one with a self-written song. All 10 of her studio albums reached the UK top 10, including the UK number one albums Never Forever, Hounds of Love, and the compilation The Whole Story. She was the first British solo female artist to top the UK album charts and the first female artist to enter the album chart at number one. We mentioned that earlier. Basically invented the wireless mic. (laughs) First to commercially use the Fairlight synth. She explored controversial themes in her music. She has a legacy that combined experimental sound with unconventional lyrics and song structures. So in that regard, she kind of influenced music from all different genres, and even inspired folks like Tupac and Big Boy. I mean, I've, she's just like, she's just done so much. She's a force of nature. Yeah. You have taken us through decades of <laughs> incredible achievements and excellence. I am, I might need a nap in the employee lounge for a minute. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so and much. And that's like not even all of it. Oh, I know. I, not even. I know. 
I know. Like I said, barely scratched the surface there, and I just really got the highlights of it. <laughs> yeah. So I left out a lot of detail. She's just, just been killing it consistently. Like, you couldn't dream for a more incredible career. Goodness. Yeah. Of course, there were other women around when she was in orbit and doing similar things, but not. They were in their own lanes and doing their own things. But it's hard to think of anyone who she may have been influenced by. Or, like, it's hard to really nail down anyone that she sounds like. But there's one person who she says she was influenced by and who she was, uh, she calls a hero. And that is Elton John, who she had on her. Yeah, her album uh, in 2011. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> well, that's got to feel pretty great to Elton John, I'd say. Goodness. I know. Yeah. Sir Elton. All right. Well, that's it. Yeah. That's, again, this is someone who is already a household name. And it's no, it's no surprise why. Well, you came through with a real heavyweight. And so... <laughs> No, but I've got a heavyweight for you too. I know oh, I'm we ready. we do this a lot with our our album of the month, you know, trying to like find some connection. But it's kind of creepy, man, how we are like on the same wavelength with this stuff. Because I think you're going to be really fascinated um, by my producer for this for this chat. Ooh, she, I can't wait to hear. She's also pretty incredible. Tune in on October second for part two of this series. Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society. <laughs>